Good to be here. Thanks for coming. I'm excited about the message I'm going to speak with you, preach to you right now, because it's a unique message in that it's going to cover the entire book of Acts. How much time you got? But anyway, 28 chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 28. In the fall here, we've been in this series in the book of Acts, and most recently, the portion we've been through is called Beyond the Bubble, because it's talking about how the gospel went beyond just Jerusalem, but into the uttermost parts of the world, like it's talked about, like Jesus predicted it would be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And what we're going to do today is step back. Instead of going deeper, we're going to step back and go broader and look at the entire book. And you're going to notice, I'm going to point out to you a pattern that, there's, that, that is there. There's several patterns one could notice in the book of Acts. But this one in particular, I want to show it to you and demonstrate it to you and then go through and look at three things we learned from it. So I believe this is really important. Because you're going to see some insights and some understanding that I think will greatly influence how you see your life. And I want to pray for that right now. So would you bow your head with me and let's pray. Dear God, I pray in the name of Jesus. You'll help us come to your word with an open heart and an open mind and see what the word of God says. As we step back and try and take a whole book and look at it in one shot. Help us comprehend some things we may have overlooked in the Word of God as well as in our own life. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be instructing us, knowing that we're very much dependent upon that. So we ask you to do that now in Jesus' name. I pray that for everybody here, Lord, and everybody listening online. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in the midst of the coronavirus, and it's kind of a depressing downtime, right? Not only in America, but around the world. The big question is this, what are we supposed to do? How is this Christian supposed to respond to such a defeating, depressing time? Many seem to be very defeated in their life. I mean, we had a positive Supreme Court decision this week. Don't really know what it means yet. I don't know if you know there's another one in New Jersey that's going to happen this week. We'll see how that goes. We don't really have a good interpretation. Nobody does of what that all means for us. But who knows? Maybe 1,600 seats will let us have three or 400 people in here. I don't know. Truth is, we're still in the coronavirus. So what it actually means and how we apply that is really hard to say right now. But... In the book of Acts, in fact, one could say in the whole Bible, when you read it, it is really a record of what God did in the past and what Christians did in the past, people of God. So when we read this, the account of the book of Acts, which we're summarizing and and concluding today, It's really just a 30-year history. Did you know that? From Acts chapter 1 to Acts 28 is a 30-year period of time. And all the book of Acts is, is, is a history book written about this early church and what happened by a guy named Dr. Luke, who was a medical doctor. So we're reading this, and we're going to look at a 30-year window of history. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is this in the Bible? Why is this recorded like this? Can we look at this 30-year window of history that God's preserved for us for well over 2,000 years and ask ourselves, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? I tried to summarize it in what's called the big idea of the sermon like this. Acts is a 30-year history that reveals a pattern, and it does. 
Oh, several patterns are revealed, but one in particular I want to point out to you that's so obvious and so instructive is this. You ready? Here's the pattern. You see a defeat. Jesus ascends to heaven. He's gone. Now what? There's victories, coming of the Holy Spirit. There's defeats, there's victories, there's defeats, there's victories, there's defeats, and there's victories through the whole 28 chapters. What is Dr. Luke trying to tell us here? What is God trying to tell us through Dr. Luke when he records this pattern? What is this supposed to say to a church 2,000 years later in Medford, New Jersey? What is this supposed to say to your life and how you deal with things with your spouse and your kids and your job and your money and your vacations? What is this supposed to say, this pattern? What is the defeat, victory, defeat, victory, defeat, victory supposed to tell you? What are you supposed to learn from that? Well, I have three particular lessons I think we're supposed to learn from it. But I thought before I even do that, I better show you what I mean by defeat and victory. So I'm going to summarize right now, walk through it. I wrote myself some notes here, chapter by chapter, and kind of give you the summary of what each chapter says. 28 times you're going to see defeat and victory. Ready? Here we go. Jesus gives his last words to the disciples, and what does he say? Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, that's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, around to the ends of the earth. That's what he promises them. Wow, what a victory. Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit, key word there is power. Power is going to come upon you. Power you don't, you have right now. And this is going to spread throughout the entire world. Wow! What a victory, right? But it's followed by a defeat because Jesus ascends into heaven, says, see ya. And he leaves to go to the Father. And they're standing there looking at the clouds. Two angels appear to them, remember, and say, what are you doing? Go out and do it. And they're like, uh, yeah, okay, do what? Yeah, okay, how are we going to do that? Well, Jesus said, wait, so let's go wait. So they're praying and they're waiting. Chapter 2, turn the page. What happens in chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. So they're feeling rather defeated. Jesus promised victory. There you see it right there. And then chapter 2 happens. Boom, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're able to speak languages they had never learned before and witness about Christ and tell people about Christ. Peter stands up and preaches a sermon like he never had before. He's got this power that was promised in Acts 1-8 coming upon him, coming through him. And 3,000 people come to Christ just like that. Holy smokes, what a victory, right? Praise the Lord. That's chapter 2. Then you get to chapter 3, and what does he do in chapter 3? The apostle Paul sees this lame person and feels God impressing upon him. Tell him to get up and walk. And this lame person gets up and walks. He's healed. He now has the power to perform healings and miracles. How astounding. And again, a major victory. Unbelievable. That's chapter 4. Excuse me, chapter 4, I'm sorry, that was chapter 3. Chapter 4 is the disciples, what happens after this major victory? Thousands come into Christ, chapter 2. And then the healing of this lame person, chapter 4, boom. All the disciples get arrested and put in prison. What? This is how we're going to do it? What a major defeat. The disciples are arrested. But so many people came to Christ because they're speaking. The authorities had to let them go because they're scared of what the people would do. 
Major victory! All right, now we're on the way. Here we go. It's going to happen. And what happens chapter 5? Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead on the spot. What? This is a major defeat. So there's people in the church that are lying? It's, 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 it's perverted? It's not genuine? What a defeat, right? Chapter 5 is all about a defeat. What happens in chapter 6? Chapter 6, they decide they have to, there's controversy already starting in the church about the widows being fed and all this kind of stuff because they're accumulating their, their resources together. And the Gentiles and, and the Jews are complaining among the Hebrew, Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so they pick seven guys to be deacons, we call them now, to serve. And one of these guys named Stephen, he's outstanding at communicating the gospel. They call him an evangelist because people are coming to Christ hand over fist in chapter 6. It's so exciting, this guy, Stephen. Just imagine, a young man full of the Holy Spirit. God's using him in a powerful way. Chapter 7 comes, he speaks to all these people. And what do they do? They take him out of the city, stone him to death. And you got to ask yourself, Lord, what are you doing? Here's Stephen. This is the future of our church. This young man, articulate, speaking to people, they're coming to Christ in droves, and you kill him? This, this is a major defeat. Major defeat. Then to make things even worse, chapter 8 tells us about this guy named Saul. He's a persecutor of the church. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he decides he's going to put down these Christians. He's literally dragging people out of their homes, getting them prosecuted in court and sentenced to death. He's there when Stephen gets stoned. They say he lays Stephen's clothes right at his feet. He's in full approval. Oh, no. Not only is Stephen dead, but there's this guy on a rampage trying to kill every Christian yet. He gets permission from the courts to go all the way up to Damascus to get some more Christians and bring them down to Jerusalem, getting sentenced and put to death. And on the road to Damascus, it's recorded in chapter 9. What happens? Jesus appears to him, and Jesus says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he falls down, he becomes blind, he's converted. The guy that's on a rampage to kill Christians is now a Christian himself telling people to come to Christ. Hallelujah, what a victory, right? This is an amazing victory. After all the defeat they just experienced, here's a major victory. That's chapter 9. Then what happens in chapter 10? Chapter 10, you have Peter and Cornelius having very similar visions. The difference is Peter's a Jew, a leader of the disciples. Cornelius is a Gentile, a Roman soldier. And they have a same vision from God. And they get together and share about what God told them. And Peter says, this means the gospel is not just supposed to go to Jews. It's supposed to go to Gentiles as well. It's what was talked about in the book of Genesis when God was talking to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and saying, guess what? You will be a blessing to the entire world, not just Jews. And it's finally clicking for him. Okay, this is a major victory. So not only is Paul now a Christian, but Peter's realizing we got to spread the gospel to Gentiles. Soon Paul discovers, yeah, I'm a missionary to the Gentiles. The gospel in chapter 11, it spreads like wildfire. Chapter 11 is so exciting because people are getting saved right and left. It's just going crazy. It looks fantastic. Chapter 12 hits and what happens? A defeat. James. James and John, two of the 12 disciples, James. The authorities capture him and kill him. 
I'm sure John is sitting there at the gravesite going, Lord, why does this have to be so hard? I thought we were going to receive power and the Holy Spirit's going to come. We're going to go tell everybody it's going to be just so wonderful. And my brother's got to die? I mean, if we ever needed James, it's now. I don't see how him being dead is going to help. He's confused by what God is doing. Defeated. Next thing we read is in chapter 13. The remaining disciples are together in a room in Antioch because they've been persecuted, driven out of Jerusalem, and they're praying. Fasting and praying. And God says, I want you to pick Barnabas, and I want you to pick Paul, who was called Saul, and send them out to spread what's called the first missionary journey. They go to Cyprus, the island, then they head up north in the Mediterranean, and they're witnessing to everybody. Chapter 13 is so exciting because the gospel's spreading and spreading. This guy that was a persecutor of church, he's now out there telling people the gospel, and he's got Barnabas with him. It's just absolutely fantastic. Paul, his, when you get to chapter 14, though, is captured. He's up in a place called Iconium, and then he goes up further to a place called Lystra, which is on the north part of the Mediterranean instead of the east side of the Mediterranean, way up north. And in Lystra, they're listening to him preach. Some of the Jewish authorities get together. They capture him, drag him out of the city, and stone him to death. <gasps> That's how this is going to end. Saul, who is dramatically converted and becomes Paul, is preaching way up there and he gets killed. Nope. He raises from the dead. I don't know if you know that, but he gets back up, walks back in the city, starts preaching to these people that just stoned him to death. What? They, they must have blown their mind when they saw him. And then he moves on and he starts preaching in other places too. How in the world? Talk about a victory followed by a defeat. It's just amazing. Well, next chapter we read, chapter 15. There's a controversy. There's infighting in the church. So if the opposers can't oppose you and break you down and make you no good and, and defeat the, the, the ultimate goal of spreading the gospel from the outside, maybe it'll happen from the inside because there's a big argument about, wait a minute, if these Gentiles are going to get saved, the Jews say, they first have to become a Jew. You have to become a Jew, you have to get circumcised, you have to keep the Old Testament law, then you can become a Christian. And the Gentiles are going, no, it's for by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of yourselves, it's not, it's not something you do, not some laws you keep. And there's a big argument. Finally, they go to Jerusalem. They have this council meeting, and they all agree. Boom, big victory. That is by grace you're saved through faith, not by keeping the law. You don't have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Well, that's pretty exciting. That's chapter 15. Get to chapter 16, and we see Paul and Silas going out on another missionary. Now he's got a new partner. He's not with Barnabas. He's with, he's, he's, he's with uh, Silas, and they go back up into the area where Paul was before, but now even further preaching the gospel and reaching more and more people for Christ. It looks absolutely fantastic until finally in Philippi, they get stopped and they get thrown in prison. And what do they do in prison? Remember the story? They're singing songs. They're singing hymns. Because they know, hey, there's defeat, but maybe victory's coming. And sure enough, the walls start to shake and an earthquake happened to hit Philippi at that time. What timing, huh? <laughs> what a coincidence. But anyway, it all shakes. All the cell doors come open. They're ready to walk out. And the Philippian jailer, a Roman soldier, pulls his sword. He's literally going to fall on his sword and kill himself because he knows that's what's going to happen. Anyhow, if the prisoners get away. And Paul says, stop. Guys, everybody stay in their cell. And this guy falls on his knees before Paul. What must I do to be saved? 
And Paul leads him to Christ and his whole family, and they get baptized. Whoa, it looked like a total defeat. Paul and Silas in jail, and now here he is getting the jailer saved, and they can all walk out. And he starts preaching the gospel again. A defeat followed by victory. Paul gets in chapter 17 to speak to the intellectuals, all the philosophers that were in Athens. Athens is a Greek-speaking area, and they were speaking and inviting Paul to come speak. But when Paul starts speaking, and they can understand he believes in resurrection from the dead, they go, ha, this guy's an idiot. Like, who is he? Resurrection from the dead? We don't believe that. And they're mocking him. But then by the end of the chapter, it looks like defeat, doesn't it, in front of the intellectuals. But by the end of the chapter, it tells us, and several of them came to Christ. Victory. Victory right after defeat. The Jewish authorities make a vow, chapter 18, and they, they vow that they're going to see Paul dead before they die. They're going to all kill Paul. They're going out to find him and kill him. But in chapter 19, Paul sees the witness of this man named Apollos, who was a fabulous communicator, but didn't quite understand how the Holy Spirit had come upon the Christians. And so Paul introduces him to what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Major victory after these guys were threatening to go kill Paul. You start to wonder at that point, well, is Apollos going to take over for Paul? So then you read on in chapter 20, an outstanding chapter in the book of Acts, Ephesus. Ephesus, a port church, a port city, which is a major port. Everybody seems to go through through Ephesus, and you want a strong church there. Well, the church in Ephesus is just exploding. Paul spends a lot of time there teaching the people there. There's even recorded his final words to the elders there, and they're hugging him and crying for him. And also, looks like a major victory in Ephesus because it's such a strong church. And Paul is warned there by a prophet. We see in chapter 21, the prophet comes up to him and t- takes his belt and binds it around him and says, "This is what's going to happen." Paul, if you go on from here to Jerusalem, you said you're going to Jerusalem, don't go, don't go. They're going to arrest you. Paul said, yeah, I know. I think that very well could happen, but I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem anyhow. And he does. And sure enough, after everything going so well in Ephesus, now in Jerusalem, Paul gets arrested. Chapter 24 tells us, I mean, chapter 23 tells us that he, he, he after being arrested, he's, he's in jail, and the Lord appears to him. The Lord says, Paul, don't worry. You're going to get to Rome. Oh, you're kidding. He always wanted to get way up in there to Italy, you know, the little country that looks like a shoe, and get to Rome, whose the Roman government was controlling the world at that time. He said, if I could only get to Rome and start a church there. And God says, yep, you're going to get there. Right after that, tells in the next chapter, he gets to talk with the Roman governor. Then in chapter 25, Paul appeals to Rome, and they, they promise they're going to send him up to Italy. But that means a long, long boat ride. And then Paul gets to, to witness to King Agrippa before he leaves. They finally put him on a boat, and he sets sail in chapter 27. This is, you know, almost the last chapter in the whole book. It seems like a defeat because what happens on the ship on the way there, you probably all know, they get in a big storm and the ship starts to sink. Oh no, is this how it's going to end? Paul's going to die in a shipwreck on the Mediterranean Sea? To make it worse, the Roman soldiers look at each other and say, you know, if any of these guys get away, it's our neck. So let's just kill Paul and all all the prisoners. I mean, we're throwing food overboard. Keep the ship floating. Let's throw them overboard. And Paul says, well, guys, the Lord told me I'm going to Rome. 
I don't know about you guys, but God told me I'm getting there. And they said, this is too scary. What do we do with this guy? Because they had already seen him perform miracles and do some stuff. So they don't. And sure enough, if they don't become shipwrecked on an island, no, they don't even name the island, but there's some natives running around there. And so they go, let's get a fire going. So Paul goes out, gathers all this, these sticks along with the other guys to make a fire. And when he's gathering sticks, a snake bites him. A viper, a poisonous snake. All the natives back off and go, oh, he must have displeased the gods because now he's going to die. No one lives from these snake bites. But by a miracle of God, Paul lives. Then they start bowing down to him like, well, you must be a god. You must be one of the gods yourself. He goes, I'm not a god, but I can tell you you can know him through Jesus. You get to the last chapter. And you see Paul after he'd been healed and he finally gets to Rome. The ship gets back, they get going again and make it all the way to Rome. He gets put in what's called house arrest. And in house arrest, he gets to continue to minister. People come and visit him. He gets that church going in Rome. All the, for two years, he's waiting to meet with Caesar because he had appealed to Caesar saying, I'm a Roman citizen. You guys can't treat me like this. And he, had, he was still waiting for his showing. And here's how the book ends. You ready? Acts chapter 2. Paul's speaking and then Luke concludes. Therefore, let it be known. He had just quoted the Old Testament. He says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years, Luke writes, at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Huh? He's a prisoner, but he's still working. He's a prisoner, but he's still a missionary. It's that defeat victory thing right up to the end. And that's how the book ends. Scholars go, well, wait a minute, what happened? Did he die then? Did he die later? When did, what happened when he appealed to Caesar? No one knows. We know Paul eventually died, but how, when, where, how, you know? And there's a lot of speculation there. But why did he end like this? What is it? This is the Bible, isn't it? What is it supposed to mean? This victory, defeat, victory, defeat, victory, defeat. And then right at the end, even is still, he's in defeat because he's a prisoner, but he's in victory because he's still ministering. It's like, well, Okay, you ready? Three things we should learn from this. Here we go. I'll try and go quicker because I spent so much time reviewing with you. Point one. The spread of the church is divine and it can't be stopped. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? That was his prediction. Jesus Christ himself. We just read in 28 chapters how that came true. In the first 30 years... Government authorities tried to put it down. Mobs tried to put it down. They killed several different Christians. And what happened? Church just keeps going. It just keeps going. Why? I put it down in that point. The spread of the church is divine. And it cannot be stopped. It's divine. Remember Acts 1.8? Remember Jesus predicted this very beginning, chapter 1, back to chapter 1. What does it say? But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Power. Listen to me, Christian. You have power that's not human power. So often, even Christians are guilty of evaluating the church humanly. 
shame on you. Shame on me because pastors do the same thing. We look at it so mechanically, so administratively, so management lies. Why? So organizationally. That's more than that. If the church was an organization, it had been dead a long time ago. If the church was something we did, it would have been long gone. Hundreds, thousands of years ago. But you can't stop it because it's not human. Acts 2 is where it's at, right? Amen. You can't stop it. So governments can do what they want. Pandemics can do what they want. Politicians can do what they want. But guess what? You can't stop the church. How many? Even the Roman government who ruled the world at that time couldn't stop it. Because you can't stop the church. It's divine. And you, my friend, are part of the church, which means you have divine power in your body. That's what born again means. Born by the Spirit. This Spirit thing coming upon you is more real than you often grow credit to. You have power you don't even realize. It's in you. It's your conscience. It's your thought patterns. It's in your feelings. It's there. Don't deny God is at work in your life. He is. So just a couple weeks ago, I met with a guy who had realized his power in a new way after a great defeat in his life. I've known him since he was about 15, and I led him to Christ, or saw him come to Christ. And his best friend became a Christian too. He actually started coming to our church way back then. He's now 56 years old. Yeah, four kids, and one of his kids got in a terrible accident. Literally broke her back in half. He said, I'll never forget. When the surgeon came to me and my wife and said, your daughter has the most severe back injury known to mankind, and she will never walk again. A 21-year-old girl will never walk again. He says, you just cannot believe the pain. You cannot believe the anguish my wife went through, I went through. He said, that was a year and a half ago, Marty. Since then, my best friend, since I was a little kid, who was a Christian with me, he's walked away from the Lord, his wife, his kids. I said, you mean your daughter's a paraplegic for the rest of her life and your best friend? He says, yeah. So, Marty, here's what I've learned. I've learned you got two choices. You walk away from the Lord or you walk to the Lord. That's, his, that's all you got. Which way you're going to go? I decide I'm going to the Lord. And then he started sharing things to me. I felt like the student. Here's a guy. He's 56, 68. I saw him come to Christ, and I felt instructed by him. Like, he's going deep in the Word. So he says, here's what I've learned. He sums up all these things. I won't take time to share it all with you. But he says, when someone comes to me now, and they hold buddy, Boy, you've been through a lot. How you, how you holding up? How you doing? He says, here's what I tell him. Boy, I was all ears. What do you tell him? He says, I tell him, I've never experienced such pain and sorrow and heartache in my life. And I've never experienced such joy. Uh, what? Joy? Yeah, joy. 
I now understand what Jesus, what it says about Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. I'm understanding defeat and victory go together. Sorrow and pain can be felt in the same heart at the same time. And I read the Bible in a whole other way. And when he's saying this to me across the, the, the restaurant table where we were, I'm reminded of my brother-in-law, Joel, who's a missionary for years, three kids, and his oldest one tragically died at 21. And I remember Joel telling me the same thing. When this guy's saying this to me, I go, that's just, just like Joel. I remember doing his son's funeral in Illinois. And later on, how you doing, Joel? And he goes, actually, I've never been in more pain or more sorrow or more grief than any time in my whole life, and I'm experiencing joy. What? Defeat and victory go together? Yes, they can, because you have what? Power! You have the power of God in you. You're not normal. I would hope that you don't have to go through the loss that those guys have gone through to come to this truth because you've seen it in the book of Acts. We see it in people's lives. You can have joy in the midst of sorrow. Paul said that. I've learned to be content in any circumstance, he says in the book of Timothy. How do you do that? Power of the Holy Spirit. You're trusting God in a way normal people don't. You see his power strengthening you. Oh, I could go on and talk about that one all day. Isn't that deep? That's true. You just read it in the book of Acts. Well, what are we supposed to learn from defeat, victory, defeat, victory? Oh, guess what? They go hand in hand. I'll show you more. Point two. Good and evil will always be fighting, which is what we see in the book of Acts, right? Good and evil keep fighting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But will end. You see, this fighting will end someday. I remember back in 1991, I went to Indonesia with a group of pastors and their wives. And all of Indonesia is Muslim, except for one island. It's called Bali. You've probably heard of Bali. Bali's a famous resort community, a famous vacation place, especially for people from Australia that don't live far away. So we went to Bali, and Bali's different because it's not Muslim. It's Hindu. Hindus are animists. Animists believe all the gods, everything has a god, and you have to appease the gods or they'll get you. And when the gods are mad at you, oh, you better light more incense. You better offer more stuff on the altar. And almost behind every house, we saw these altars and incense burning all over town. I mean, this is the way it was in Bali. And this, this missionary says, well, we have to take you to a barong dance. So they put these dancers, we saw these dancers, let's put them on, there they go. These dragons that dance around, and, and, and it's supposed to be a symbol of what happens in the world. It's Hindu instruction. Here it is, ready? This is what they tell. Good and evil always fighting. Oh, that's true. Never ending. That's what it looks like. Good and evil always fighting, never ending. Good and evil, and the more I thought about it, I thought, boy, that's, that's really got some truth to it. Good and evil always fighting, never ending. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Never ending? No. <laughs> That part is not true. Sorry, Hindus, you got it wrong on the last part. Good and evil always fighting. Yeah, I totally agree, 100% with you. Never ending? No. My Bible says it ends. You ready? Revelation chapter 21 says it ends, right? What does it say? The Great Tribulation has just happened. Six years of unbelievable defeat has taken place around the globe. And what happens? There's this big war. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And who shows up? Jesus. 
Look at it. Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw a new heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a white robe dipped in blood. Oh, that sounds like Jesus. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That is Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him with a white ho- on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Oh, he comes for judgment, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember, this is at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Holy smokes. There's victory. But then you turn the page and all of a sudden he wins the victory. He ascends up a thousand year reign. Then he takes Satan and his, and his demons and throws them into hell. And then here's where we read chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. Whoa, this is crazy. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Whoa, it good and evil does always fight, but it ends with the second coming of Christ. It ends with the setting up of a new heaven and a new earth. It ends by God being with us forever and ever. Yeah, yeah, amen. Good time to clap. One time years ago, I was reading this, I couldn't help but remember this, and uh, we had staff elder retreats. We used to do this every winter time. We haven't for a few years now, but we'd have staff elder retreats at a local hotel, and I'd bring in different speakers to mentor us through it. And this one speaker I brought one year was named Walford Thompson. Walford Thompson uh, is a missionary down in the islands. He's from the islands, you know, the Caribbean islands. He's a black man. He's an older man, and he was full of wisdom. And he was instructing us. And in one of his sermons, I'll never forget it, guys. I hope you never forget it. He had been through cancer. He had been through hardship with one of his children. He had been through difficulties with being persecuted. Been through all kinds of stuff, far beyond anything I've ever been through or you've ever been through. He says, here's what I've learned. Everything that happens to me, good and bad, victories and defeats, everything was for my good. All things work together for good to those who love God are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. He smit that with a big smirk, a smile on his face. Everything that's ever happened to me has happened for my good. Second, he said, everything that happens to me happens to you, happens for our good and for God's glory. The whole reason you exist is to make much of him, to give him glory. And I'm starting to realize all these things are for me to give him praise and thanks and glorify him and trust him even more. All things work together for good for God's glory. 
So everything that happens to me is for my good, God's glory, and the ultimate advancement of his kingdom. Did you catch that? So Walford Thompson says to us, staff members, all you elders, catch this. This is what you got to learn. Everything that happens in this church, everything that happens to you is for your good. The church is good. God's glory in the advancement of the kingdom. Really, says John, my brother James dying? Really, said the Christian Stephen Stoning? Yeah, everything is for God's, your good, my good. Yeah, your whole life is for me. And I get, you get to go in heaven early? That's good. God's glory is glorified by Stephen's death, glorified by James' death, glorified by Paul getting stoned half to death. For God's glory, a shipwreck, a snake bite? Yeah, God's glory. And the advancement of the kingdom, because you can't stop the church, right? Oh, you guys, what a precious truth in this up and down thing. Yeah, don't forget that. Thirdly, lastly, I got to quick go quick. For all Christians, defeat is only apparent defeat. Did you catch that? For all Christians, defeat is only apparent defeat. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or coronavirus? I added that one. As it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Underline that. More than conquerors for him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah, right? You can be assured. The defeat you're in right now is just apparent defeat. It just looks like defeat. It's not real defeat because you're more than a conqueror. Not height, not depth, not any politician, not any economic problems, not any president, not any coronavirus. Nothing can separate you from that. It's almost like he's trying to say, what are you worried about? And here's a guy that had been through all that kind of stuff. Paul, that's who wrote it. Well... We've just been reading 30-year history in the book of Acts. This church has been in existence over 40 years. What pattern do we see here? Well, son of a gun, it's the same pattern. Up, down, up, down. Victory, defeat, victory, defeat. Oh, it's the same thing. We started this church in my house in 1980. In 1980, it grew like crazy, up to 50 people. Couldn't believe how fast it was growing. People we didn't even know, we hardly knew anybody in Medford. And the thing was growing. And then in 1983, it all came to crashing down upon me because I get a phone call from my mom. My dad's 61 years old. Boom, he's dead. My dad was like super healthy. No one knew he had a brain tumor. Boom, he's dead. I am so sad, so grieved. I'd never been that sad before. And then, to top it off, one of the major givers in our church comes to me and goes, you know, this isn't for me. What? And he leaves our church. Defeat. I was very defeated. 
But we moved into a school in Medford, and our church started growing from 50 people all the way up to like 100 people really fast. People started coming. We met in the lunchroom. We had to move the lunch tables out of the way, set up chairs, put up temporary microphones and music, use bedrooms for Sunday school rooms, do all this kind of stuff we were trying to do. And it was going really good, but we noticed after a few months, even after a year or two, you know, we're not going anywhere. We're stuck. We're defeated because nobody wants to come to our church in a school. Some people even say, well, you're not a real church yet. And we felt like we were in defeat. Then we found a piece of property, seven acres of land. And God started showing us hopeful ideas that we could buy it. So we went to borrow some money, and everybody kind of laughed at us, you know, like you don't have enough money to borrow money. Isn't that funny? You have to have money to borrow money. But anyway, um, finally the denomination said, well, he'll lend you the money. Interest rates are off the charts at that time. I'm talking 10, 12%. And so we borrow money. We, we're, we're paying on the piece of property, and we feel like, you know, we've got to get out of this school. We've got to get a building. Let's do, so an architect draws us the plans of a building we could build. We've got a guy in church that builds a model of it. And then we start thinking, well, we go to the denomination with all our plans, and they laugh at us and say, are you kidding me? You haven't even paid off your property yet. You can't build a building. And we go, come on. God said if we build it, they will come. We go, Finally, I think because we harassed them so much, <laughs> They finally gave in. They said, but you can only get 250000 Well, we can't build for that. Well, we have to find a way. We said, well, why don't we have a framer come in and frame it, and the guys in church will build it. And if you go over there and look real close, you'll see the old chapel's kind of like, okay, I know. I did some of it myself, <laughs> and I'm not a builder. I was a painter, so we painted over and made it look good. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, we got the building up, and the thing... The, what a, what a, I mean, we cried so much. 1986, May of 1986, we were just overjoyed and exhausted. And, we, and the thing started growing like crazy. Now, I could go on, but I got 35 more years to go, and it would take too long. We don't have that much time. But it's the same exact pattern. Defeat and victory. Good and evil always fighting, but it does end. What did I say to you? you will, Jesus said you will receive power. Do you believe that? Do you believe you? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, like Paul said, that you have a power that's not human. You have to believe that. That's what made you born again. That's why you're sitting here. You're a Christian. Your conscience is different. Your brain is different. Your heart is different. Your, your desires are different. It all changes because you have a power that's not human. That was point one. Point two, we went through all this fighting. There's fighting. Yeah, you've got to change your expectations. You, there will always be fighting in families. There will always be fighting in the government. There will always be fighting in the world. It'll never end. Uh Aha, but it will. There'll be a great tribulation when it gets even worse. But then Jesus will come. He'll set up a new heaven and a new earth even. That's why I say, point three, your defeat is just apparent defeat. It's not final. It just looks like you're defeated. You're really not. You're more than a conqueror. Two statements. Let me get done. In conclusion, God has a purposeful victory planned for your life. God has purposeful victories planned for our lives, right? Purposeful victory is planned for your life. Live it.
Now this one you got to catch. God has purposeful defeats planned for your life. What? Yep. God has purposeful defeat planned for your family, planned for your health, planned for your job, planned for America. That's the world, good and evil, always fighting, but it ends. And you can be promised that you are more than a conqueror because you have the power of God within you. Jesus Christ is your Savior. He's coming again someday. So don't expect everything to be victory. It's not supposed to be. Read the book of Acts. There's supposed to be victories. There's supposed to be defeats. And you should be able to, like my friend and my brother-in-law, have joy even in the midst of defeat. Ready? Let's pray. Lord, for all the defeated Christians here, all the the people in despair and depressed because of the coronavirus, help them realize it just looks like defeat. It's apparent defeat, but it's not real. No, really, God wins. Really, this is just part of his plan. Really, the truth needs to be revealed to our brains and our hearts and our minds that we have all things in Christ. And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So, in your heart right now, make a promise to the Lord. Lord, get me back on track again. Lord, I'm promising I'm going to follow what the Word of God teaches in the book of Acts. I'm going to believe this power is within me. I'm going to believe this, this fighting is just apparent and that there's victory for me in the end. I'm going to prepare, pray and trust because there's victory right now, not just in the end. I can have joy in the midst of sorrow. And so, Lord, I cling to you more than ever. I decide that I'm going to follow Jesus to the very, very end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.